Hello, good friends. Uh, the last show uh, probably got many of you really worked up because I challenged as accurate a tradition in the body of Christ about knowing God's will. And it's a tradition that is widely accepted. And what I worked hard to demonstrate was that this tradition that we've all received simply could not be found in Scripture. Now, on today's show, I want to share with you what is taught in Scripture and is also modeled by the disciples to help put you on solid biblical ground when you make the important decisions of your life. So here it is, round two of decision-making and the will of God. In our last session, I, um, I gave you something to think about. If your reaction is like a lot of folks that I've talked to in the past about this, it was a painful thought, I suspect. And I understand that there are certain things that we have grown up with as Christians that we're very attached to, and sometimes it's emotionally difficult to challenge or to question those things. And this is why my goal was to try to lay as accurately as I could a plan out that is a conventional approach, and then look at the pieces under the light of Scripture and see whether the verses supporting the plan uh, actually did the job. I'm deeply convinced that they don't, and that the plan that many people follow is foreign to Scripture. Now, lots of times at this point, people are going to come to me and say, well, let me tell you what happened to me, and they tell me their story. It's almost the universal pushback that I get. And here's my response. My response is, I don't exegete experiences. God can do whatever he wants. If he wants to speak to you through a leprechaun under your bed, he's welcome to do that. But I cannot teach whatever I want. And as a follower of Christ who is offering scriptural teaching, I'm under obligation to speak what the text speaks if I'm able to. Like I said last time, some things are not so clear. This, I don't think, is one of those. And if you recall, I mentioned if there is a discipline that is important to Christian living, that God expects us to heed to. It is there in the text clearly and repeated frequently. That method isn't there at all. But there is a method that is spoken of frequently in the Scripture. At least the pieces of it are there without mistake. And I want to talk about that right now, because I said I was going to take something away, which might be painful, but I want to give something back too. Here's what I observed when I was trying to work this thing out for myself when I went to the Scripture. I I did not observe any indication that there was a blueprint for my individual life that I had to discover in order to make decisions for my own life. I didn't find any passages that taught me to pray for God to tell me what decision that I was supposed to make before I acted. I didn't find any places where I was instructed to hear from the Lord, to learn to hear the voice of God. I didn't find any hint of any kind of language that we use regarding this process. I felt led, had a peace about it had a confirmation, open doors, closed doors, etc. I didn't find any of that, but what I did find is commands and prohibitions that God expected me to obey. That was pretty clear. I found places where there were critical and important decisions that seemed to be left up to me. And I'll get into some detail about that. Marriage, ministry, uh, choice of a job, these kinds of things. I saw scripture encouraging the legitimacy of my personal desires, properly understood, uh, the importance of my conscience, the need to make wise use of my time, 
because the days are evil. Paul said in Ephesians 5, don't waste time, in other words, waiting. <laughs> I mean, there's no need to wait. I was told to pray for wisdom. Then I saw decision-making habits of the apostles in the early church, and, and these things sent me in an entirely different direction. And these observations were actually stunning to me, given the current evangelical approach to decision-making. So I want to suggest to you a model that's not new, it's ancient, and it's rather fairly straightforward. It's not complicated. In fact, I can sum the model up in a single sentence, and here it is. The model's guiding principle is this, using the moral guidelines of God's Word coupled with wisdom. I don't mean that there are some moral things that aren't wise. I'm saying that the moral guidelines are delimited even more by wisdom when you're decision-making. It'll be clear in a moment. You have the freedom to do anything you want with God's blessing. Using the moral guidelines of God's word coupled with wisdom, you have the freedom to do whatever you want with God's blessing. Note there are three parts there I just mentioned. God's moral will. We talked about that in general last time. I mentioned wisdom, and I made reference to our personal wants and desires. And these three factors really comprise the model that I see practiced by the disciples. It's entirely consistent with all the observations that I offered just a few moments ago. It is workable, it's practical, and it's biblical. And as I said, in one sense, it's remarkably simple. One way of looking at it is with, with intersecting circles. So I don't have a PowerPoint presentation here, but I just want to imagine this. What we're going to do is we're going to take options, the world of options that we can decide about, and we're going to start whittling it down. The first circle is the circle of God's moral will, and those are all the options either commanded or prohibited by Scripture. If our goal is to do God's will, and God's will, the ones that we have control over, have moral ramifications, then when it comes to things like save, sanctified, submit, suffer, spirit-filled, always giving thanks, and those kinds of things, and a host of other things we see in the New Testament, those are objects of our decision-making. So we have, of all the options that we have to choose among, we are limited to doing only those options that are morally sound, choosing among those options that are morally sound. Now, how do we learn these things? Well, I'm pretty convinced that the totality of God's moral will in the way I'm talking about it now is re revealed in Scripture. That means the more you know Scripture, the more you're going to know God's moral will, the easier it's going to be for you to make good, sound, righteous decisions instead of making unrighteous ones. Now, how do you learn this? Well, you read. <laughs> you give careful consideration to what you read. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Later on, verse 15, same chapter, Be diligent to present yourself a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the Word of God. So we apply diligence to our study. Uh, meditation. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1, verse 2. Memorization. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee, Psalm 119.11. There's lots of different ways we get the word into our lives. The more that you do this, the more diligent you are in this, the more that God's purposes and intentions and desires and the rhythm of all that becomes part of your life. And then it becomes a lot easier to make decisions about things because you, 
It just becomes almost second nature. The writer of Hebrews says at the end of chapter 5, he's, he's abrading the Hebrews because they're, they should be mature, but they're like children. They should be mature having their senses trained to discern good and evil. And that training comes from the renewing of our mind that comes from the Scripture. Now, the purpose of God's moral will is that we obey. And it extends not only to the choices, but also to the motives that we have about the choices and the intentions that we have. And so we could be doing a good thing for the wrong reason, and that comes underneath this qualifier. Let's give an example here. Let's uh, how this might work out. God's moral will in marriage, okay? Probably the next most important decision that you make in your life um, after your decision to follow Christ. Okay, so what is God's moral will regarding marriage? Now, I was single for a long time. I, on my honeymoon, I had my 48th birthday. So I had a lot of time to reflect on this. And of course, it's a big job. You know, when you want to get married, you got lots of options. So what is God's moral will regarding marriage? Well, there's three things that I can think of. First of all, you have to marry a Christian. Now, this is 2 Corinthians, I think, chapter 5 or maybe 6. It says, do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. And I cannot imagine anything that is more yoked to a person than marriage. And there are reasons for this. I won't go into it right now. But not only is it uh, God's moral design, it's common sense. If you deeply value one thing and the person you marry doesn't value that at all, but despises it, possibly, uh, this is not a good thing. So they have to be a Christian. Since like 90% of the world's population is not Christian, think of how much I've just simplified your job, <laughs> right? So we made it a lot easier now. So only a Christian. What's the next moral requirement? They must be a member of the opposite sex. And I'm speaking in terms of physical sexuality not what you think you are in your mind. And unfortunately, these are qualifications that now need to be made. Now I've just cut that remainder in half, so I've simplified your job. The third moral issue is that this person that of the opposite sex that's a Christian needs to be biblically free to remarry if they are divorced, and not everyone is. So those are the three requirements in terms of morality. When you're thinking about getting married, those are the moral concerns. There's a second circle, though, and, and I've just given one example, but you can think of lots of different things. You want, uh, what, what business should I go into? Well, you could be a, a plumber or an attorney or a drug pusher. Oh, wait a minute. Now, that one's out, right? So, fairly simple, actually. And there's a temptation to want to make it a little bit more dramatic and embellish it, but it doesn't need any embellishments. Pretty straightforward. We are obliged to make choices that are morally sound in terms of ends, in terms of means, in terms of intentions. <laughs> in terms of uh, motivation. Okay. Second, the circle of God's wisdom. Now, this is a circle that kind of floats around. It's going to be wholly within the circle of God's moral will. And the reason is, is because wisdom is always morally freighted. That is, there is nothing that is wise that is immoral. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, you read through the book of Proverbs, there's all kinds of references to the moral nature of wisdom. But wisdom is always going to be moral, so anything that's wise is going to be within the circle of morality. 
but it is going to delimit your moral choices because there are some choices that may be morally acceptable, but not smart. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. It is insight into how things work together properly. The book of Proverbs, I spend a lot of time in the book of Proverbs because there's a lot of wisdom there. It's not the only place there's wisdom. You can get wisdom from other people. How about this? A stitch in time saves nine. <laughs> a penny saved is a penny earned. Actually, a penny saved is more than a penny earned because you have to earn about two pennies in order to keep one. So it's even better than that nowadays. But so there are people who have insight into life. God obviously has insight into life, and the book of Proverbs gives us a lot of insight there. It's what is sensible. It's what's expedient. I mentioned Ephesians 5, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so there's a sense in which uh, wisdom entails expediency too. And now this is ironic, isn't it? Because on this other model, there are some that will enjoin you not to decide, but wait until God shows up and tells you. And some of you might have gone through periods of trying to make a decision where you thought you're going to wait forever because nobody's telling you anything. You're not getting any signs, but we're not going to move until we get a sign from God that we're supposed to move. Well, did you get a sign from God that you're supposed to stay? So this is a double-edged sword. Well, Paul says, don't waste time. Days are evil. Time's passing fast. Be wise. Wisdom allows us to see the alternatives helps us to see the consequences. That is, if you are wise, you see other things. If you're wise, you see the consequences. We raise our children, what? To be wise, because they're not wise. They're stupid. They make bad decisions. And so we want to say, don't do that, because something bad will happen. We know better. They don't believe us much of the time. So wisdom comes from experience. How do I make good decisions? Wisdom. How do I get wisdom? Experience. How do I get wisdom? Bad decisions. Hopefully we learn from those things, right? We can get it from other people. You can ask God for it. James says in chapter one, you're going through trials and difficulties. Pray for wisdom, insight, help to understand so you can persevere, so you can make the right decision. Even Solomon asked for it. Solomon visited by God after the dedication of the temple. God says, what do you want? He says, I want wisdom. Now, this is kind of interesting, though, because Solomon is engaging God. For those who think the model is to hear from God, when Solomon heard from God and God said, I'll give you something, why didn't Solomon say, I got all I need. There you are. I could just come to you anytime I got to make a choice. Even Solomon understood that wasn't the way it worked. He said, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can rule this great people of yours. Second Chronicles 1.10. He understood that he needed God's wisdom to rule. He wasn't going to get a hotline to God for every decision he had to make. So you can ask for wisdom. You can ask for wisdom from God. You can ask for wisdom from other people. That's called counsel. Proverbs itself says, in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. And so when you have tough decisions to make, it's really good that you go to other people and lay your life on the line a little bit and help them to see what's going on, especially if you're in difficulty and trouble. Relationships, they go south. They're hard. Between friends, between other church members, between husbands and wives, what happens? We hide. Maybe we talk about it 
in secret. But we don't bring it out into the light much of the time where people with wisdom can help us. So let me give you an example, back to marriage here, about how the circle of wisdom may delimit the choices. We've seen how the moral rule affects, uh, the moral will of God affects our decision-making with marriage. What about what about all those options that are still left over, those Christians who are members of the opposite sex? Now what? How about this one? Proverbs 11.22. Now, you need to understand that Proverbs, many of them, were written by Solomon, so he's instructing his son, right? So he's going to give illustrations to a son regarding marrying a woman, okay? It re- applies in reverse too, gals. So please don't take umbrage at the illustration. It works both ways. He's just talking to his son. Proverbs 11.22, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. So is it a sin to marry a beautiful woman who lacks discretion? No. It's stupid. You get the gold ring, but the pig comes with it, all right? Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Like I said, the opposite is true for men as well. So there's an example. There are plenty of things that may be morally allowed, but they may not be prudential. They may not be sound. They may not be wise. And this is why we go to other people to get feedback on things. Do you know why arranged marriages work so well for so long? Like almost for the entire history of the world, is because parents chose mates for their children that were like them. They chose from their community. They had shared values. They had shared commitments. They had shared families. They were all together. Because there were all of these things going in the same direction, there was a much better chance that that marriage was going to do well and survive. And so that becomes a real important criterion for marriage, what wisdom was. You want to marry somebody from another culture? My son spent a lot of time in Brazil and doing projects down there. Brazilian girls are really cute, and they're really sweet, and they love the Lord. But you know how big of a thing it is to marry somebody from a completely different culture? It's a big deal. Now, that can survive. Marriages can survive that kind of stuff. They can survive differences, but they can't survive a lot of differences. And if you have one giant big thing like that, everything else better be in line because marriage is hard. Well, that's counsel. And that's the kind of counsel that will help people make wise decisions, okay? Sometimes, by the way, God's moral will is a guide to making wise choices. Again, marriage, uh, the scripture teaches that wives should be responsive and obedient to their husband's leadership. So gals, if you have a guy that you're interested in, since you are going to be obliged to be responsive to his leadership anyway, you better find a guy whose leadership you already are beginning to respect. Like, that's the kind of guy that I can follow. He's not a loser. He's a leader. If he's not a leader, but you really like him, you probably shouldn't marry him. See the point there? Is it a sin? No, it's just dumb. And there's lots of examples like that, but I think you get the point. Uh, One difficulty, by the way, applicationally, for the individual will model that I've critiqued, is that a lot of people fancy they're getting a word from the Lord or feeling led regarding things because a lot of people get married this way and they end up getting themselves into situations they should have never gotten themselves into. 
really bad matches. They're emotionally attached to people who are not wise choices. And I think their emotions are speaking, not the Lord, but they they baptize their emotions with spiritual language. And we're feeling really led. We're certain this is, and then most of the community says, well, if you're really certain this is what God wants, they got to back off. So that's the problem with that view. Okay, so we have God's moral will delimited now by wisdom. So we we can only choose those things that are morally sound in the respects that I described and that are wise. We have a final circle, and this circle floats anywhere, and that is the circle of personal factors. Now, it is clear to me from Scripture that our personal desires matter in our decision-making. Paul talking about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and by the way, that chapter is the largest section anywhere in the Bible that talks about the decision to get married. It's massive, and nowhere is the slightest hint given that we are to seek God's decision about our mate. Paul discusses the issue of marriage, but he never hints that uh, the decision is somehow up to God. But he does say there that in my opinion, verse 40 of chapter 7, she is happier if she remains as she is. Now, you don't need to know all the context here to get my point. He is talking about whether a person should stay single or be married, and he says, in my opinion, she's happier. Point being, that person's happiness is a factor in decision-making. That's a personal detail. You're thinking about getting married? I mean, some, some people like, you know, blondes, some like brunettes, some like short, some like tall. There are all kinds of, a full range of preferences, and those things are somewhat malleable too. You know, that is when you, you think you know what you like, and then you meet somebody that, that you grow to love, and then all of a sudden those things change. But the point is, is they change, and you like something new, and those desires and preferences are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. That's the flesh. It's not the flesh. It's the self. By the way, self is not just another way of spelling flesh. Just because your self is involved doesn't mean your flesh is ruling. This is bad theology. It's actually more Gnostic than it is Christian because it makes it sound like anything that comes from me is bad because I'm material world is nasty. That isn't Christian teaching. God made the material world. Jesus took on material when he became a man. So our personal desires are valid, but they are not the ruling factors. This is an important point. Regarding giving in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Paul says, let each one do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, my personal conviction is tithing is not a New Testament teaching. It's a, a requirement of Jews under the law. It is not a requirement of Christians. Giving is, but the giving is up to the individual, and there's your guideline, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Not under compulsion, that's tithing, tenthing, to give 10%. Actually, the Jews gave a lot more than that under the law as it turns out. In Romans 14, verse 5, Paul says, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So there are different personal factors, conscience factors, personal likes, dislikes. Those are all important to God, okay? However, even though in actual practice, we follow a different pattern. We don't start out with moral will, and then we talk about what's wise, and then we talk about our personal preferences. Usually, it's the other way around even though it happens in that reverse order, and that's okay. We think about what we like, and we ask, well, is it right? Well, is it moral? It's okay. Important thing is that all the different factors are in play, all right? The order doesn't matter that much. Here's the important thing, is that what we want is not the thing that rules. 
once the thing that we want is what rules the whole process, and that is the standard way the world works, they really don't have much else to work with. Lots of people want to do the right thing, but when push comes to shove, the right thing turns out to be what they want to do, and they've just sanitized their decision in some way with some rationalization. We don't want to do that. We're followers of Christ, which means that we are beholden to him. We want to do what's right. Do our personal issues matter? Yes, of course they matter, but they are not the thing that is decisive. And the fact is, in life, we face very difficult decisions. And when we face those difficult decisions, sometimes our personal factors, they don't fit in. They don't fit anywhere in the circle of God's moral will, or they don't fit anywhere in the circle of wisdom. Now, what do we do? We do what's right. We do what's right, and we trust God in doing what is right. Let him who suffers according to the will of God entrust himself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is 1 Peter chapter 4. I've read this verse many, many times because I, like anybody else, gets crossways in circumstances, and you want to do what you want to do. You want to do your own thing. You want to do what satisfies you, what brings you benefit and pleasure in the moment. Sometimes that means retaliating against somebody who's giving you a hard time, specific context of that verse. But still, the antidote is the same. We still must rather do what's right. And we have to entrust ourselves to God in doing it and trust in his grace to help us through it and trust in other members of the body of Christ to give us encouragement that can help us in these things. But we have to do what's right. You pregnant? You have no husband? That hard? That's really hard but you cannot take the life of that baby. It's a hard decision, but we are restrained in the choices that we can make. You know, some of you know that my wife was a single mom when I married her. Dane was 16 when we got married, 16 years. She made the right choice. She carried the term. She took care of that boy. We got married. Now we have two little girls, and both of them are adopted out of crisis pregnancies. Their mothers did what was right. Was the choice hard? For my wife, yes. For those mothers who gave their daughters to us to raise, yes, but they did the right thing. You can't kill that baby. Oh, I have my rights. I I have my liberties. Well, I'll tell you what, you do have your freedoms. You do have your liberties according to the law, but you do not have a moral right to take the life of that innocent child. When what we want goes against what is right, we do not get what we want. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's hard. But the fact that it's hard does not change anything. So back to this marriage issue again. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is making it really clear. There are pros and cons to being single. This is where he addresses this whole issue. You want to be single? Well, pluses and minuses, right? If you're single, you are free to serve the Lord without the distraction of family. And for some, this might be a pleasant distraction. I I understand that. I have a family. It's a pleasant distraction for me. But the fact is, my attentions are divided. Okay, that if you're single, as I was for almost 48 years, I had my 48th birthday on my honeymoon. There was a lot of productivity that I was able to have as a single person. But single people, Paul points out, may suffer sexual frustration. Verse 9, he says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. And he means they're in passion. If you're the kind of person that, when it comes to sexuality, is a marrying kind of person, that kind of stuff matters to you, which is most people. Well, then probably it's a better idea for you to get married so that I think the way he talks about it is 
if you're single, you can have undevoted or make an undistracted devotion to the Lord. But for some of us, it's undistracted. It's undevoted distraction. Did I get that right? It's hard. And so we're the Marian kind. He says it's better to get married. Now, if you get married, all right, I get it. That's okay. But there are pros and cons to being married. I mean, married people enjoy sexual favors. That's an advantage, the marital state. But then married people have to split their attentions. So there's, there's pluses. There are minuses. By the way, there's also moral obligations. He points that out, too. If you are single, you can't fornicate. Sex is for marriage, period. Not popular nowadays, especially among the church. They don't have that teaching outside of the church. So the issue of popularity doesn't even come up. We do have that here, and it seems like vast majority of single people just simply ignore it, which is really tragic. Because it's Paul who says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom. I want to say period, but he actually includes a whole bunch of other. A period for our point. You're fornicating, you're living with your girlfriend, all that other stuff. You're not in the kingdom. That's what Paul says. Okay, just as an aside, no extra charge. So you can't can't fornicate if you're single, and if you're married, you can't get divorced. This is all in 1 Corinthians 7, which is uh, why I think this passage is such a great paradigm case for decision-making, because everything's in play there. You have God's moral will, you have wisdom issues, and you have, uh, you have preference concerns. Because Paul says, look at you know, for me, I think you'd be happier staying single. Now, that was reflecting Paul's personal issues. But you decide. It's up to you, he says. And uh, if you get married, you're not sinning. If you stay single, you're not sinning. It's up to you. Now, I wanted to point out another, what I want to consider probably a, a practical problem of this other method of decision-making, this one where you seek the Lord's will, that is, God has chosen his mate for you, and you got to figure out who that happens to be. Now, that's pretty important, right? If God has somehow made the choice, well, you better get it right. And a lot of people haven't thought of the massive, massive practical problem of the view that God has chosen one person for you to marry and you have to hear from God properly to get it right. Because what happens when you don't hear from God properly? And this happens, right? Even for those who hold this view. Well, I thought I knew what the God, God's will was, but I, you know, I just got it mixed up. But in this issue, this could be really tragic because on this view, God has chosen a person just for you. What if you don't hear properly? What if you marry someone else? Well, then you're not marrying the person that God has chosen for you. Well, that would be bad enough, but it's a lot worse than that because that means the person that God chose for you cannot marry you because you're already married. So if they're going to get married, they're going to have to marry somebody else. And if they marry somebody else, that somebody else was not God's first choice for them. That was you, and you're out of play. They got to marry somebody else who's God's second choice. And how would you like to be second fiddle? But it's worse than that. Because if they marry the person that's God's second choice for them, that person conceivably was God's first choice for somebody else. And now you've just taken that person out of play, and that other person now has got to settle for second best. I mean, you see the problem, and the dominoes begin to fall. And pretty soon, nobody's married to the right person because they can't be because one person messed the whole system up. One mistake can mess up the whole world. So those are circles. There's our circles, our model. Circle of God's moral will, circle of wisdom, circle of individual preferences. There's one other circle I just want you to visually 
See this circle encompassing all the rest of them. It's a huge giant circle. All the rest are inside. And I'm going to call that the circle of the sovereignty of God. Now, when I was talking about that, I, I implied that the sovereignty of God doesn't directly affect our decision making because the sovereignty of God, this God's sovereign plan is hidden. It's his business. He doesn't let us know that. He gets that done. But I want you to see how it affects the whole process. It doesn't affect the decision making. It affects our attitude. Because there are lots of times when we do the best that we can to decide what is moral and sound and wise and consistent, if possible, with our own designs, and then it doesn't work out. All of a sudden, the door slams in our face and we can't go forward or everything falls apart. Then what? That's when we fall back on the sovereignty of God. This is when we remind ourselves we didn't plan for this. We didn't expect that thing to happen. We didn't know we were going to encounter this kind of problem. This came out of nowhere. This wasn't in our plans. I didn't cause that. I didn't sign up for this. In all those things, we can acknowledge the sovereignty of God in the midst of our most difficult situations and face what he has allowed to come into our lives. Look at Job. The hand of the Lord has done this, is what Job said. His wife said, curse God and die. Instead, Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. That's not always easy to do, obviously. And our lives are filled with all kinds of toil. It's a standard for the Christian. And this is where the passage from James comes in, James 4, 13 through 16. And at first, it seems to be saying something else. First, it seems to be going along with this other view, but never read a Bible verse. So let's read all three verses here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. That sounds like he's uh, complaining about people making plans. Well, Coco, you're telling us to make the plans, God's moral will, wisdom, personal. Wait a minute, James says the opposite. No, that's not what James is saying. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So what is he finding fault with? James is saying, if you're making the plans in your life as if you're the master of your ship and you're the one who controls everything and you are not taking into consideration the right of the sovereign God to intervene anytime he wants, then you are boasting in your arrogance because you don't even know. If like in Luke 11 or wherever Jesus said of the rich man who made the barns, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. And then what? So will I be here next week? I plan to, if the Lord wills. But if the Lord intervenes and something terrible happens, well, then he's willed something else sovereignly. And my job then is to surrender to that. Give thanks in all things. Trust in him deal now with an entirely new set of circumstances that God sovereignly brought into my life. And sometimes those things that come into our lives are look bad at first and then turn out to some wonderful thing. And other times they look bad from our experience and they stay bad and they never change because God's purpose in that is to cause all things to work together for good because he's predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. You know, there's a book on marriage that uh, some may need to read. It's called Sacred Marriage. 
And the subtitle of that book is, Maybe God Did Not Design Marriage to Make You Happy, But to Make You Holy. Now, that's bitter medicine for some of us, but it's true. God's sovereignty. The story's about him. He's in charge. He can do anything he wants with that which is his, which is everything. So knowing God's will, does it require a sixth sense, an ability to decipher the codes? No, it, it Spiritual maturity is growing in our understanding of the Word of God. It is growing in our wisdom. It is growing in our submission to God's revealed will and to his sovereign designs. And I think the result, when you follow that biblical plan, is going to be, many times, peace. Now, I'm not referring to the peace from Colossians 3. I'm referring to the kind of practical peace that you feel when you cover the bases appropriately, when you do your homework, when you think through it, when you you settle in to surrender to the sovereign purposes, not my will, but thine be done. See Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane? That's sovereign will stuff. I don't want to go, but it's not up to me. You want me to go? I'll go. Not my will, thine be done. And when we put all of those things together in that way. And it's, it's a process of maturity, of course. We're going to, I think, many times have a piece that says, I feel good about the decision I made. I, I trust that God is working in this circumstance. And frankly, if you don't have peace about some process of decision-making, there's nothing wrong with stopping for a few moments and taking a closer look. Sometimes, you know, something's coming through and you don't have to over-spiritualize. Is this God saying no? Forget about that stuff. Don't bring in those confusing elements. Just if you're not feeling right about it, then you bring in somebody else and say, you know, I'm not sure about this. Maybe I should just wait. Maybe there's something you sense, but you don't, can't put it into words. Maybe somebody else can put it into words for you. That's not an application of Colossians 3. That's not trying to find a hint from God. That's just common sense. The kind of common sense that God gave us to use in circumstances like this. So the wisdom model in summary, guidance is simple. If God has not given you a direct command in Scripture, do the wisest, most desirable thing. Now, sometimes that process will be quick. Sometimes it takes a long time. It all depends on the circumstances uh, on each individual decision. But it's not complicated. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to to give you some examples from Scripture where we see the, the same elements in play. And let's start with Paul in Romans chapter 1. The first half of the chapter, before he gets into his theology, before he starts developing in verse 16 and following his this argument about salvation by grace, he's engaging the Roman Christians and he's talking about his desire to come and see them. And he says, I want to come and see you, and I have some reasons for coming and seeing you, but I have been prevented thus far. Now we don't know what's preventing him. I think we get a hint at it in, in just a little bit. In any event, he's expressing these uh, these intentions. To go to Rome was not commanded or prohibited, but it was consistent with the revealed moral will for Paul. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish to preach the gospel. So that's consistent with God's moral will and direction for him and for us, of course. He has a special desire to go to those places where the gospel has not been preached. So maybe he'll, on his way to Spain, breaking new territory, he'll come through Rome. So he's got a plan. 
that he talks about. He, while he's in Rome, he can provide spiritual ministry to Roman Christians. Verse 11 there, I long to see you in order that I can impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Um, also, verse 12, that I can be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13, I plan to come to you in order that I might obtain some fruit from among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So there's some spiritual fruit here. Notice how he is giving all of the reasons why this is a smart move. There's no record of any reference to any hints that he's getting from God that this is God's will or God's purpose or he's feeling led or he has any of that stuff. It's not there. And in the process, Paul prayed for an opportunity, trusted the outcome to God. He's delayed. Uh, He doesn't interpret the delay as a red light from God. In chapter 15, he mentions he thinks it's a matter of timing. But it's interesting what he says in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, always in my prayers, making a request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I can succeed in coming to you. Notice the language there. You get a picture of a guy who's got a plan and he's trying to walk through a door that is closed, but he doesn't stop. He doesn't see the closed door as a no from God, better go around some other way. He says, I got a good plan. I'm going to do this. Open the door. Open, please. Open. I'm going to keep yelling, open, praying consistently, so that if at last, by the will. Now, what will of God do you think he has in mind in this place? The sovereign will of God. He knows that he is not, whatever else is involved, it is God sovereignly not allowing that door to be open. But he's going to still push against it. And then if at last, you can hear the intensity of the trying and trying, he will succeed. And he did succeed. In chains, he went to Rome, but he did succeed by the sovereign God. First Corinthians chapter 6, we see another case here. This is uh, legal disputes that the Corinthians were having with each other. And I just want you to catch these, this language. And maybe this will stand out for you a little bit more now that we have some of this insight about decision-making. There are Christians that are taking each other to court before the, the local magistrate. They're suing each other. And Paul is, he, he's, he's aghast at this practice. Here's what he says. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? He doesn't say sit down, pray, ask God to tell you what to do. He says, isn't there anybody with a bit of horse sense that can figure this out? Here's a huge example, Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. This is a big deal because there was a problem in the early church about the relationship of the Mosaic law and salvation by grace, especially as it touched Gentiles. And so in Asia Minor, Minor Turkey, where Paul had his first couple of missionary journeys, Judaizers had followed him and then gone into Asia Minor and corrupted the new Christians who were Gentiles. They said that you got to keep the Jewish law. So now what? The book of Galatians is written to address that question. But we also have a council that's recorded in Acts 15 in Jerusalem where the leadership gets together to discuss this theological concern. What do they do? When you read the account, they pooled their spiritual and intellectual resources by consulting the scriptures 
looking at their circumstances, verses 8 and 9, observing what God was doing in their midst, and weighing the significance of signs and wonders confirming the message of grace, verse 12. Then they argued and debated, verse 6, and then they came to a conclusion, verse 19 through 22. Now, what's very curious is about how they describe their conclusion, because they describe their conclusion in two different ways. There's no language, by the way, about hearing from God and letting God decide and all that other stuff, even though these are apostles and church leaders. And this is the book of Acts, where all of this stuff is supposed to be happening all the time. Here's the way they characterize it. Verse 19, therefore, it is my judgment. This is James who is presiding. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. My judgment. Verse 25, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you and to give you this message. So they wrote a letter. But I want you to see the language here. It's my judgment. seemed good to us. They sent this letter instructing the Galatian believers about this circumstance. And then they end up by saying, verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, which they described in the letter. Now, that's really interesting because that's the only mention of the Holy Spirit anywhere in this discussion. That's the only mention of God anywhere in the discussion, except for the reference to God working miracles in the Gentiles, just like he had worked in the Jews. So obviously, Gentiles are heirs to eternal life. This should be not news to the Jews because this goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12. In any event, why is the Holy Spirit mentioned here? along with the phrase, it seemed good to us. That's a repetition from earlier in verse 25. Here's what I think is going on. I think these men got together, and they pooled all their resources, as I described, and they came to a conclusion that seemed good to them, and they presumed that the Holy Spirit was working through the leadership of the church in the whole process, so that when they wrote the letter, they said, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit too. They saw God's sovereign hand in the process. They didn't have to hear from God. And there are other examples like this in scriptures, Acts 15, 34. It seemed good to Silas to remain there, Acts 15, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. First Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. They're making the decisions there. That process there in uh, the Jerusalem Council epitomized, I think, Proverbs 16:9. the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. So once again, same process, deliberative process. Paul's first missionary journey was directed by a special word from God. It doesn't say in that particular passage, I think it's Acts 14, how that was. It just says that they were ministering there before the Lord with prophets among them, and the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. So my presumption is that since it's the Holy Spirit speaking and saying in the midst of prophets, it was probably a prophetic word that was given. But that's a specialized directive, God's will there. But the second missionary journey, Acts 15, 36, that wasn't like that. Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Second missionary journey. The care and feeding of the Hellenistic widows, Acts 6, problem in the local church. Uh, Widows being cared for. The Jewish widows were getting special treatment over those widows who had uh, Greek cultural backgrounds. They were still Jewish, but they had a Greek cultural background. And so how did they solve this problem? Select from among you brethren seven men, that the apostles said. So 
The leadership didn't even mess with this problem. They said, you guys find seven men. You among yourselves find seven men filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom and solve the problem. Same thing going on. Now, here's a big one called the ministry. Uh, it's big because serving the Lord is really important if you're a follower of Christ. And I don't mean serving the Lord in a professional capacity. I do that. But from the beginning, I understood it doesn't matter whether you get paid for it or not. I have a responsibility in the body of Christ to serve. Okay, so where do we do that? And the idea of being called is really um, a huge part of that enterprise, especially if you're thinking of, for lack of a better word, professional ministry, getting paid for the work. Uh, The word call is used in four different ways in the New Testament, other than when the word is used to mean referred to or beckoned or named. He was called John or They called the group over, you know, there's hundreds of times that the word is used that way. Other than that, there is the general call, which is an invitation to faith. Many are called, few are chosen. There is the effective call, and this is used mostly by Paul, and that is God's work of bringing a person to faith. Paul says, uh, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, 2 Timothy 6. 1 Corinthians 7, but God has called us to peace. Philippians 3, 14, I press on for the goal and the upward call of God. There's also a phrase called referring to spiritual gifts in Romans 1, 1, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul was also called as an apostle. We see that in those two passages. So that's his, uh, that's his calling, if you will, his gifting. And finally, there's a reference to supernatural revelation which is the kind of thing that most people are thinking of when they say, I'm I'm trying to find the call. Is God revealing to me that he wants me to do some particular thing? Three references. Paul and Barnabas, first missionary journey, Acts 13. The vision calling Paul to preach the gospel in Macedonia, Acts 16, 10. And of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. That's it. Out of 218 uses of uh, of some form of the word kaleo, in only three instances, and one was from the Old Testament, and one is a vision, and the other one is the Holy Spirit speaking there in Acts 13. The word is not used of the rank-and-file Christian being called to ministry. Do we need to be called to ministry? Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. I don't even know what that is. You ask people, what does it mean to be called? You get all kinds of different subjectivized definitions. Well, it's a certain feeling, it's a nudge, it's a whatever. It doesn't say that in the text. How about this? Go into all the world and make disciples. Great commission. Is that, is that enough? Do I need more than that? Biblically, God does not distribute ministry by calling. This is the takeaway here. Biblically, God does not distribute ministry by calling. This is so completely Christian countercultural. It is so obvious from the text. God does not distribute ministry by calling. He distributes ministry by gifting. Where do you find that? 1 Corinthians 12, like a massive portion of Romans 12, a massive portion. 1 Peter 4, I think, three or four verses. It's there. I like the way Peter puts it. Let me just read it because it captures it. As each one has received a special gift, notice he assumes that everybody's got something they can do. As you have received a special gift, ask God what your gift is. Ask him where to get to, to employ it. Then follow his leading as one each as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let us speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as 
by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So here's the pattern. You want to serve? I hope so. You're part of a body. We need you. Figure out what you can do, then do it. Employ it in service as a good steward to God's glory. That's the pattern of 1 Peter chapter 4. Forget about callings. It's not scriptural. Gifting is. Some people think they're called to things they're not gifted for. So unless God gives you some unmistakable directive, do the smart, good thing. Don't look for the directive. It'll come if it's needed, and you won't miss it. It'll be an angel. It'll be a vision. It'll be a voice. It's not this little nudging thing. Does God have a plan? Does he have a purpose? Yes. His plan is his sovereign will. You don't get to look behind the curtain. You get to look at your circumstances with the guidance that the scripture is filled with to make your decisions. Now, I know there's some questions in mind. I just want to answer a couple of the questions that commonly come up and will be done. Are you saying the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to us? My answer is it depends what you mean by the phrase, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. The scripture identifies lots of different ways that the Spirit subjectively works in our hearts. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. The Holy Spirit empowers us by filling us to be able to do works of service. The Holy Spirit enables us to live a holy life. The Holy Spirit gives us insight into Scripture. It illuminates what's already there. The Holy Spirit comforts us. It comes alongside. It's the parakletos. It's the the helper. There's all kinds of things that the Holy Spirit does. But the Scripture does not say that every Christian gets to hear from the Holy Spirit in a revelatory way. It just does not teach that. So those are all ways you could say God does speak to us through the Spirit. I wouldn't use the language. I would use the language of the New Testament. I got convicted of sin. I was encouraged by the Lord, I, something like that. I, because if I said, instead I said, well, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me, it might give the wrong impression, especially in our present state of affairs. I certainly do not think that the Bible teaches anything like what some have called a conversational relationship with God. Controversial for me to say that nowadays, but uh, it's just not there. Uh, it certainly doesn't teach that we have to hear from God before we can make decisions. And I don't think there's any advantage to try to actively listen for God, because if we do that, I promise you, you'll hear something. It's probably just going to be the rumblings of your own mind. But if you are told that if you listen hard enough in just the right way, you can hear God, you are likely going to take the thoughts in your own head and give them divine authority. And that would be a big mistake. All right, well, what did Jesus mean then when he said, my sheep hear my voice? I have two questions that I always ask when people ask me that question. The first question I ask is, where did Jesus say that? Nobody I've ever talked to knows where that is. I know where it is. It's in John chapter 10, just because I studied a lot. Uh, The second question I ask is, what is going on in John chapter 10? Never read a Bible verse. Well, if you notice in the sixth verse, after he's introduced this phraseology about sheep hearing his voice, he being the shepherd, The writer, John, says this he spoke as a figure of speech. So when Jesus is talking about being a shepherd and sheep hearing his voice, he is speaking in a figure. He is not talking about hearing anything. And in fact, he's in conflict there with Jews who are not believing in him. And he says to them, you don't hear my voice. Do you think they heard that? Of course they heard that. He wasn't talking about his voice. He was talking about something else. You don't hear my voice. Why not? Jesus gives the answer to his own question. You're not my sheep. My father has given my sheep to me. The sheep that the father has given to me, they hear me and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Did you see the sequence there? They hear 
they respond, they receive eternal life. Where are they when they hear? They are unregenerate. They are unbelievers that have been chosen by the Father for Jesus who respond in virtue of that and then get saved. He is not talking about Christians in John 10. He is talking about non-Christians. There's actually two different times of conflict, circumstances in John 10, where he has the same conflict with the Jews and he uses the same language. And now maybe this upsets some of your theology about other issues. Uh, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just telling you what's going on in John 10, and you can go back and read that tonight if you like, and you'll see it for yourself. He's not talking about anybody hearing anything. Certainly, he's not talking about believers who have developed the ability to hear the voice of God and help them in decision-making. It's just not there. But you see, what's, what this requires is it requires that as Christians, we can't live sloppy anymore. We can't just say, oh, I'm just going to pray about it, and God will tell me, and if I feel the nudge, or I feel that, or I see the open doors, and now I know what I'm doing. No. It requires that you grow up, not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but you continue to day by day plod forward, laying it down, having your mind renewed, understanding things better, being connected with other believers in the body of Christ that can see things in your life and give you feedback, and then you move forward, making the decisions that change you into the kind of person God wants you to be. One life. Jesus. Jesus.